Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us as a guest, Shannon Stewart, who is an exit tax planning specialist. Shannon works with entrepreneurs who are in the process or will soon be selling their businesses. Developing a tax strategy to help them minimize, or in some cases, totally eliminate taxes they will owe when their business is sold. In the first transaction that Shannon shares with us on the podcast is a sad story of a tax plan gone awry. Although a comprehensive tax plan was painstakingly crafted and designed, Shannon's client, for some unexplained reason, but likely triggered by the pandemic, went dark on her for nearly nine months. Less than a week before the sale was to take place, the client called and asked if everything was ready to go because the closing was scheduled for the following Monday. Needless to say, there was shock in Shannon's team and with her. She carefully explained to her client that a significant portion of the tax planning strategies that have been crafted couldn't be done and implemented in a matter of days. Listen and find out what happened in this situation. In the next transaction, as four partners in an Amazon e-commerce business positioned their business for sale, it was discovered that they had no written partnership agreement and only a handshake gentleman's agreement. As the business moved toward the sale, the lack of a decision-making mechanism became problematic. You'll have to listen to see if lifelong friends and partners and the relationships they had survived the sale. Our next story is about how a husband and wife team that had started a business as a side hustle eventually turned into a full-time business and eventually an eight-figure exit. They had done extensive tax planning for their estate and had planned on leaving a bulk of their estate to their favorite charity. However, what they didn't realize is that they could do much the same that their estate plan was to do, but they could do it while they were still living. And at the same time, they could benefit themselves as well as their charity. And again, the important thing that you'll hear in this story is that they could do it while they were alive and at the same time save millions of dollars in taxes when they sold their business and then have those tax savings benefit their charity. Our final story today is how a business exit strategy isn't always for millionaires. In our last story, Shannon shares about how a young woman who was 22 years old and a freshman in college started a business targeting her peer group. After growing her business for a few years, she wanted to sell her business and go back to college. She met with her father and he suggested that she meet with Shannon. After carefully understanding what Shannon's goals and objectives were and her desire to return to college, and based on her projected sales price of $400,000 and a potential tax liability of about $87,000, 
You'll learn as you listen to this story how an exit strategy and tax plan was crafted to eliminate all of her taxes, that whole $87,000 worth, and to use those savings to fund her college education. Don't you wish you were this smart when you were 22 years old? I know I do. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're here with Shannon Stewart. Shannon, would you take a few minutes to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your business and where you're located? Hi, my name is Shannon Stewart. I own Advanced Accounting, and we're actually located in Michigan. However, 80% of our clientele are actually all, all positioned around the world, and we help clients and, entre- well, basically entrepreneurs to actually pay the least amount of taxes while they're running their business. And our superpower is actually helping them on the the exit of that business to pay the least amount of taxes legally possible as they sell and exit their businesses. Well, this is going to be an exciting episode. Primarily, I think the antenna is up on most of the audience here who are business owners that haven't thought a lot about selling their business up to this point in time. And now that they are, they are starting to zero in on some of those issues such as taxation and something that may not have been at the top of their priority list in the past certainly is going to be in the future because I think most everyone is expecting some changes in how capital gains and all of those years of hard work are going to be taxed as people look to monetize that hard work in the future as they look to exit their business. And so this should be an interesting episode for our audience here. So why don't we kind of jump in and and chat a little bit about that now. So why don't you share a transaction with us that may have had its challenges and maybe didn't come out as well as anticipated and maybe could have been done a little bit differently and kind of share a transaction that has those characteristics with us here as we talk a little bit about taxation here and people exiting businesses or selling other assets. Definitely. So I, we just had a, um, a transaction that closed in February and we had started working with this gentleman about a year and a half ago. So when we bring individuals into our our process, we take them through a discovery process you know, getting really the the understanding of what their businesses are. Oftentimes we have serial entrepreneurs, what their businesses are and what they want to have happen or accomplish on the back end. So we had a, had an individual who had engaged us and we were engaged for about 18 months and we had gone through the discovery process and really mocked up a really solid plan that coupled several different planning strategies. So we were um, working with a gentleman who was a real estate investor um, he was actually in a state that had no taxation, so that's always wonderful. Um, but we still were dealing with the federal taxation. And he was selling a, 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 a whole complex of apartments. And it was a $5 million deal. And so it was a quite a large deal, especially since he had also um, utilized a cost segregation study with some of the advanced planning we had done a few years ago. Why don't you just talk a little bit, because cost segregation is something that really applies not only to real estate, but uh, you know other types of assets. Why don't you just briefly share with our audience in case they aren't familiar with that term or the strategy? So a cost segregation study is a method that is utilizing Um, a study of the assets. So oftentimes we see it in the real estate market where we actually bring in an engineering company to actually look at all the different components of that building. So everything, if you were to buy a building today and it was a commercial building, 
we would, you would purchase it and we would depreciate the whole building over 39 years, meaning we would take a fraction of that original basis or original purchase price and we would actually deduct a portion over it over 39 years. With a cost segregation study, we're actually coming in and we're looking at different key areas. Oftentimes, um, we're looking at 13 different areas. And there are different components within your building that depreciate on a, a different timeline. They have a different useful life. So, for instance, carpeting. Carpeting is not going to last 39 years. And so we can accelerate the depreciation on certain components of your real estate, your building, over a time period. So we actually go through and we do a study. And we look at different components of, you know, different upgrades that were made to that that um, real estate. What what component? What percentage is um, HVAC carpeting? Like just down to the nuances of those different things that are inside that real estate. We're able to give them different useful lives based on the percentage that are actually housed inside that real estate. So you're able to actually accelerate depreciation over usually about a five year period. So that means you get a higher tax write-off, better cash flow if it's a rental property. And so it basically means more money in your pocket quicker up front from that standpoint. But the caveat here is when you go to sell it, you got to recapture that depreciation. It means you got to pay, pay taxes on it at the sale. So they're a really great planning technique. Um, I think it's one of the most underutilized techniques, especially when I have a lot of real estate investors that come through. That's one of the first things that we do is to help them with a cost segregation study. So a business owner that had maybe owns his building or something could apply the same strategy as this gentleman that you're working with here, the real estate investor. Definitely. Exactly. Exactly. So this gentleman had come into our system and we had spent 18 months. We had we had actually come up with a very unique strategy for him that was going to be a partial 1031 exchange and um, and a monetized installment sale. So we kind of used several different strategies to come up with a unique plan. And then COVID hit and he just went dark on us. So let me get the context right here. So you'd been working with this individual. He knew that he was going to be selling a year or two down the road. He had this on his radar and he had planned for it. You had been working with him and you and your team had developed this strategy and kind of teed it up for the actual point in time in which he would be exiting. And it was kind of all laid out. So he had gone through the pre-planning process, accepted your strategies and everything, and then and all of a sudden, after COVID hit, he kind of disappeared off the radar. That's what you're saying? He did. He did. And, you know, it was a strange time for us all, really. And so um, February of 2021 comes around. And on a Thursday, I get an email that says, hey, I'm going to close on Monday. Well, I literally had like three people pop their head in my door and said, did you get that email? And I'm like, I did get that email. We've got a problem. Because we had done all of the planning, but there were things in behind the scenes that had to take place. You know, doing developing the plan is great, but then there were things that you know, uh, you know, from a from the lawyer standpoint and the escrow closing standpoint that had to be in place to make the deal all come together. Um, and so he ended up closing. We could not do a hundred percent of the plan that we'd put together. We were able to do a fraction of it, um, but it was at a substantial cost to him. Now he's still my client because because he's a real estate investor and he's going to do more of these deals coming up. And you know he was like, you know, I kind of lost my head over the whole situation, but it'll never happen again because it cost me tech in tax dollars. Well, I would imagine when you're 
talking about things such as a 1031 exchange, those things can't happen on the dime. I mean, that has to take planning. You have, there's time criteria that has to be in place that you have to meet. And it's not something that can take place over a weekend. <laughs> no, it's, it couldn't. And and we, I mean, and we actually went back to, to our clients and said, you know, can we push, press, you know, can we press out the date? Like we can have some of these things happen, but we can't, you, you know, Here's the nuance. When we're talking about exit strategies, um, there's so much that you can do, but it has to be properly planned. It just, everything has to, you have to make sure you've crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's and you've done the planning. That not only holds true for the tax side of the equation, it holds true on a lot of other aspects of positioning a business for sale. The taxes, which are a significant portion of what an exit plan should entail, but you have to really plan and anticipate and put things in place far before you actually get to the closing table. And in your situation with the technical area of tax planning, it's even more important. Definitely. Definitely. So what would be the big takeaway here? I mean, I have to believe that you're saying that you had, I don't know, five strategies all teed up that would significantly reduce the impact of taxation that would have on his particular situation. But what you're kind of telling me here is that you maybe got one or two of the five that actually was able to come to fruition. Is that what you're telling me? Exactly. Exactly. We could not execute 100% of the plan given the time constraints um, of when they were going to closing. You know, in my mind, now I, I personally you know, offered to call the the buyer and, and and even throw myself on the bus on the on the on the you know at the mercy of the buyer to say you know I need a little bit more time to make this happen. But the seller was worried that the deal would fall through if we tried to to push off the buyer just even a few weeks. So. Well, I would imagine that there was a significant check written to pay the taxes that he probably didn't have to write if he had been a little bit more dialed in and called you a few months before. Definitely. And that's the unfortunate because here's the thing. There are legal caveats. You know, we call them loopholes. We like to call them in the professional world. We call them caveats. There are definitely caveats within the IRS code that give us the ability to pay the least amount of taxes possible. But for number one, you got to know what those, those caveats are and you have to know how to utilize them and how much time it takes to actually implement them as well. So the big takeaway here is really you have to not only do the planning, you actually have to allow time for the plan to be executed as you approach the actual closing because there are statutory time requirements and there are things that actually have to take place in advance and cannot be implemented at the last minute. And in this particular situation, some of the strategies and techniques and caveats that you were planning for just couldn't happen and so they didn't take place. And the penalty for that type of circumstance was you ended up writing a pretty big check or this gentleman ended up writing a pretty big check to pay the taxes. Unfortunately, unfortunately. So many of the planning techniques that we utilize have those time restraints. And also, so one of the things that we run into a lot is that we'll be doing, we'll be doing planning and we'll, we'll be educating on the different strategies that exist. And um, all of a sudden, someone will call me up and say, I've got a letter. Of, I have someone who wants to give me a letter of intent. And I'm always, And one of the things that we always have to remember when we're doing our planning is some of our planning techniques that we utilize 
once we have a letter of intent, they're no longer valid. We can't use those strategies. So again, when we're talking about any type of planning um, from taxation, exiting of, of a business owner from a tax standpoint, we need to be kind of forward thinking. We need to be looking down the time horizon. You know, am I going to be selling in 12, 12 months, 24 months? Um, I can't have you call me up on a Thursday and want to close on Friday and have everything, you know, or have a letter of intent already in place and us actually be able to be the most effective that we can be as a as tax planners. So I guess the takeaway here to reiterate is really planning is great, but you have to allow for time of execution and then actually execute on the plan. That's correct. Well, that's a word to the wise out there, I guess. Look at what you can do and then execute on what the plan that you actually put in place is. So why don't we move on to another transaction that you might be able to share with us that'll have a different spin to it or orientation on doing some planning? Well, definitely. We had a, a a partnership that came to us. It was an e-commerce partnership and it was a $10 million deal. And it was a pretty amazing deal. Um, they being an e-commerce business, they, they actually had some inventory and some other nuances from that standpoint, but they actually had four partners and what happened inside this planning. So again, they engaged us about a year before they were actually going to sell things were going just really well. We were talking about strategy. And then all of a sudden, um, we had some pushbacks for some, from some of the partners. The partners couldn't agree on what were the met metrics going to be when they would actually sell the business. So, you know, one, one partner was like, well, I think it's a $20 million company. And one said, well, no, I'm willing to take, you know, 8 million. And the other said, you know, I'm willing to take 12 million so that we couldn't get consensus of what the metric was. We wanted to list it with a, a broker that we knew, but we couldn't get them to actually agree on number one, the, the what, what was the price? What was the metric? What was going to trigger the sale? Everyone knew that they really wanted to sell, but you know, they didn't know what the actual sale price that they were going to be comfortable with. And then when we got down into the nitty gritty, I realized as we were kind of going through our discovery processes, there was no partnership agreement. Nothing was in writing. This was all just basically a handshake, which is great. I think from my perspective, I've heard this type of situation over and over again. You start the business, your friends and the business grows and takes off and things are going well and you like each other and you just don't anticipate that there'll be a time when you may not agree and it isn't documented on what the process is going to be. So I'm just really curious that when you have four different people, generally it's two people in the partnership a lot of times, but when you have four people, it's kind of exponential in nature almost because they aren't the same age. They have different points in their life, different attitudes, different goals and objectives. So how did this kind of unfold? So as we were going through our discovery process and our and our planning process, and you, of course, I asked to see the partnership agreement and everyone said, well, this is just a, well, this is just gentleman's agreement on a handshake. I started to kind of ask different questions. So I'm always like, let's ask different questions. So what happens if one of you dies? What happens? Tell me. Well, technically you're in business with the partner's wife, you know, and then the other individual wasn't married. So now you've got an estate issue. What happens if one of you becomes disabled? What happens if one of you wants to 
just exit the business and like you're just tired of dealing with, you know, no one wants to sell and you don't want to work anymore. How do you how do you frame all of these different things? And I, you know, a partnership is kind of like a marriage. Oftentimes we'll have a premarital contract, a prenup that kind of talks about what happens if this doesn't work out. How do we how do we all kind of leave the the arrangement unscathed? And so just like in a partnership or any business agreement, how do you, you know, that partnership agreement actually talks about those things. Like if you, you know, do you have a buy-sell agreement? What happens to death disability? What happens if I want to sell? And so we had to kind of do the planning in reverse. We kind of had to, they, this would, this partnership agreement should have happened prior to them getting into business. But now we were at, you know, we were at the doorstep of listing our business with a broker and we had to kind of hash all of those different things out. And ultimately, you know, as the mediator, as my team as the mediator, we were really able to kind of start to flush out, um, you know, the different personalities, you know, because everyone started fighting. Everyone like now they're friends and they're golfing together, no longer golfing together because they're just upset about different things. And ultimately, we came to the metrics that were needed to actually what they all felt comfortable the business was worth with the help of the business valuation and the business broker, and they were able to list their business. It sounds here, just to jump in here for a minute, that you had really two things going on here. You had really the dynamics of a, a partnership to get everyone on the same page. And then when you incorporate the tax planning issues in this, you almost had to plow up where the road was going to be before you actually laid the asphalt down, which is the tax planning. In this particular case, you had to do a lot of preparatory work before you even got to the tax planning issues, or at least that's what it sounds like to me. No, definitely. And, and you know, and it's something I run into this so often. So I was working with another um, another client just last week, and one of them, two of them are in California, one's in Chicago, one's in Florida, and they have a partnership. And I said, look, can I see the partnership agreement and the buy-sell agreement? And everyone looked at each other on Zoom like, oh, well, we just went and formed an LLC in, in Texas. We didn't do anything other than that. And so that's my cue right there to take a step back and ask those questions of, okay, we've got to have a solid plan in place because they want to sell their business within four years. And so before we get to that that ability to actually do any type of tax planning, we've got to do all that foundation pieces as well. And it happens every day. I just had a call earlier today with a with a couple of guys who um, sell equipment online. And it's a, it's a gentleman's agreement. I think it's more common than not, you know, because it's not fun to talk about some of those things. You know, you know, when we're talking about having a, you know, plan, again, this all comes down to planning and being proactive in our planning. And sometimes those things are hard to talk about, like, especially, and in, in, in no offense, but 90% of the people I deal with are men. And so oftentimes they don't ever, they don't like it when I talk to them about what happens if you die or if you become disabled, you know, from that standpoint. And so, you know, it's something that, it's not nice, not fun to have to talk about these things before we even get to what they just want to sell their business. They're like, Shannon, we don't care about all this other stuff. We just want to sell our business, but it can complicate things in the transaction if we don't have everything really clearly, all of the, the nuances and expectations are already preset. 
So in this particular situation, as you laid this groundwork and got them to the point now where they're actually focused on the tax planning and you indicated that it was a $10 million transaction, what type of strategies did you put in place and what type of deferral or tax savings were they actually able to realize and as you structured this transaction for an exit from a tax planning perspective? Right. So it was a $10 million deal. They had no equipment depreciation that we had to recapture. So if we would have done no planning at all, they would have walked away with about 7.5 million. So they would have lost about 1.8 million to taxation if we had not done any type of planning whatsoever. Um, What we were able to actually do for them is a deferral strategy. So we did a, a monetizing loan coupled with an installment sale. And they actually walked away with about 24% additional cash in their hand over no planning at all. So they walked away with about $8.8 million at the close of this deal. Well worth the time to at least think about this, isn't it? Definitely. I, I mean, it, it put it put about $1.7 million more in their hand than they wouldn't have had. I mean, that's a huge chunk of change and, and for anyone. And so in, in this situation, if you're looking at a takeaway from this transaction, uh, obviously you have the issues that revolve around having a partnership agreement and having those types of things in place. And then you can move on to the more substantive dollars and cents of what's actually going to be realized when you actually do sell the business. What would be the big takeaway, something our audience could hang their hat on from this specific situation? Well, I think it's never too late to do planning. You know, these individuals had been in business for a number of years together and it had been a glory. I mean, they, they did very, very well for themselves. And um, I think it's never too late to do the planning. It's never too late to be proactive and to really make sure that you have everything in alignment. I mean, it's just like when I'm working with a client and we're talking from a financial planning standpoint, and I I ask the question, when was the last time you updated your will or your trust or your beneficiaries? This is something as well, like when we're in a partnership with one another, it's never too late to do that updating that may need to may, may need to happen prior to a big event like a sale. Well, even more importantly, when you're actually talking about four different partners, you could envision a scenario where a partner may have a different opinion on the price that's going to be accepted may have a different opinion on who the actual buyer should be, the plans that buyer has for the business and why they're purchasing the business. Some of the partners may be motivated entirely by the net result of the sale and could care less or care a lot less about what's going to happen to the business, while another partner may care very deeply about what happens to the business and be able to take less money. And if there isn't a decision matrix or methodology to get past those things, sales can collapse over disagreement on those basic exit terms. Definitely. You hit the nail right on the head. Well, that's a good takeaway for our audience who are in partnerships. I think what Shannon said here, it's never too late to do planning. Even if you've been in business for 20 or 30 years with a partner, when you're kind of rolling up on that exit time, time to put things in writing so that your exit doesn't blow up at the last minute because of a partnership issue or a difference of opinion. The amount of time and dollars spent to get those things taken care of in advance of an actual sale is probably money well spent and time well invested. All right. Well, Shannon, 
Why don't we move over and chat about a couple of transactions you've been involved in that went well and some of the takeaways that we can learn from the circumstances of these specific transactions? Yes, we actually had a deal that closed this year. So when COVID started hit, we had about 17 or 18 deals in flow um, and everything kind of like stopped. But we have all of our deals that are kind of coming back onto the line now. And we had a client that had a $12 million um, internet business. They actually sold a product, um, had been in business for about 16 years. And um, it was listed for $12 million. The net taxable gain was about 11.6. And they were in a state that had taxation. So their taxable gain was about 11.6. Their taxes were going to be about $4.3 million. So after, if they did no planning whatsoever, they were going to walk away. This was like a husband and wife combo. They're going to walk away with about $7.2 million. Okay. Now we went through the whole planning process and they chose to actually use a charitable planning technique and they were able to walk away with about $10.6 million and we eliminated their taxation. So here's what the nuances of this particular client, um, this client knew what they wanted to accomplish. They knew that they wanted to leave a legacy. And so when we go through the discovery process, I never even asked what's the purchase price really of your, you know, what you want to sell your company for. What I usually ask for is, you know, what do you want to accomplish? What, what does the Monday after you sell your company on Friday look like for you? And what do you want to make sure that you've, you've done um, so that you feel good about this transaction? Because, you know, our businesses oftentimes are our lives. They are. They are how we identify ourselves. There's so much wrapped up in, in our businesses. So this couple wanted to leave a legacy. They had a charity in mind. Um, they really, and what they said was, when we die, our this much of our estate goes to this charity. And I said, well, wouldn't you rather see the money go now so that you can see the benefit of it? Like, how would that make you feel? And as soon as I said that, immediately they were like, oh my goodness, can we do that? How does that work? And so we used a charitable remainder trust strategy to actually accomplish that. And they, as I said, you know, had they done no planning, they would have had about 7.2 million with the planning that we did. They walked away with 10.6, fulfilled their charitable, you know, their charitable, their philanthropic um, desires from that standpoint. And so basically over like a five-year period, they got like a $2 million payout for five years. And then they had some additional tax savings that were built in there just by base, you know, the way that this trust actually worked from that standpoint. And, you know, it was just a really great, it was a fun transaction. It was a fun process. It was fun working with them, but they had a vision. They knew what they wanted to accomplish. And oftentimes when we work with clientele, sometimes we have the kind of figure out, we have to kind of, um, you know, pull out the vision and help them to formulate their vision, help them to understand the transition as well from being a business owner to not being a business owner, um, if they're not going to be a, you know, a serial entrepreneur from that standpoint. So that was a really great, um, a great transaction. And I think the thing that made it so great is that they knew what they wanted to accomplish. And they knew, like, there was no, like, once we educated them on the different strategies, they knew what resonated with them and what, and they picked a strategy and they just went hard all the way to close with it. So for an audience that may not be familiar with how a charitable remainder trust works, 
Why don't we take just a couple of minutes here and talk a little bit about how that works. Let's say I'm a business owner, have $10 million value that I'm going to exit from my business and just use this situation here. They picked a charity, regardless of the charity. It could be a religious organization. It could be the SPCA or any type of charity out there that qualifies as such. And so walk our audience through how this particular situation unfolded and how they were able to defer the tax. Kind of what were the mechanics that went into it? Right. And just from like a, a, you know, kind of a 30 foot, 30,000 foot level here, I want to say this, that this charitable strategy, this is one of those nuances that you have to have the strategy in place, the trust formed before you even have a letter of intent. So this is something where that pre-planning becomes very critical because once there's a letter of intent in place, we can't utilize a charitable strategy. So I just, that's kind of one of those nuances there, but a charitable remainder trust basically is established um, with charitable intent. So that's the first reason why we would establish this, but basically it is established also with the mechanism to actually avoid taxation on highly appreciated assets. That could be, you know, a business or any other highly appreciated asset, not common stock or anything that's publicly traded like that. But basically what happens is the trust is established and your your business or your highly appreciated asset is actually um, transferred into the trust and the trust can do something that you can't do. The trust can sell assets without paying tax on capital gain. And that's the nuance. That's the magic here from that standpoint. So basically, the trust sells the asset at at a step-up in basis. We could say it's a step-up in basis. There's no tax consequence on that. They transfer the, the portion that's earmarked for the charity to the charity. And then over your lifetime, you receive a uh, a non-taxable distribution of the proceeds of that business sale over a predetermined time period. It can be five years, seven years, as, as long as a lifetime from that standpoint. And there's different types of trusts as well. So just for summarization purposes here, I have a $10 million business. I transfer that $10 million ownership of that business over to the trust. The trust sells the asset at that point in time because it is a trust. Because of the way the trust is structured and everything, there is no capital gains. A portion of that sale goes to the charity at that point in time. And then you receive non-taxable distributions over a set period of time. It could be five years, 10 years or as long as your lifetime. And so you have benefit of that. And so what you would have normally paid in taxes stays in the trust. In this particular situation, you know, you said what two and a half million, three million dollars would have been paid in taxes was able to retain into the trust and not paid in taxes and benefit the charity as well as distributions to you down the road. Is that kind of an overview summary? That's a great summary. Yes, that's a great overview summary. Yes. Well, for those listening in, if that's something that you haven't really thought a lot about, and more often than not, when I have talked to a lot of M&A advisors and people that are involved in the transaction flow of the business, a great 
portion of the time, there's very little tax planning. That's not the role of an M&A advisor, generally speaking. Their role is to position the business and to get the maximum value out of the business and bring the right type of buyers, whether it's financial or strategic, to the table. And sometimes things that are sure in life is death and taxes that, you know, you're going to have to pay the taxes, so you may as well bite the bullet and pay the taxes. And that's not really the case, as our discussion here has demonstrated, is that if there's the proper planning that takes place, taxes don't always and can be deferred or in some situations totally eliminated if the right type of planning takes place. But it's not going to happen in most cases. If you don't do the planning, a lot of those opportunities slip by and you're either precluded from taking them or it's too late to take them. As you said, with the letter of intent, if that letter of intent's in place, that opportunity for the charitable remainder trust disappears with the signing of that document. So what would be the big takeaway here from this transaction that you shared with our audience that would maybe resonate with them as they think about their own specific situations? Well, I think, again, I think there's an underlying theme here is that it's about planning, And it's about understanding what you want to accomplish from that standpoint. Um, You know, the other day I had someone call me up and he was thinking of listing his business, not because he really wanted to, but he just felt the time was right with the environment and some of the, the, the speculation around the increase in capital gains and so forth. These individuals here, when I was working with them, they knew what they wanted to accomplish. And And they knew that they were charitably minded. They knew what they were going to do after the sale of their business and what they wanted to to actually have come um, the outcome be. And I think that's, again, it boils down to having that fruit, that doing that planning and, and, and being open to the fact that there are strategies out there that your current CPA may not be aware of. So oftentimes I tell individuals that your current CPA may not be your tax strategist as well. And that's okay. We work with a lot of, of CPAs or EAs or tax professionals who whose job has been in the life of, of your business to fill out and to compile an air-free tax return. That has been their job. That is what their focus has been. And they're very, very good at it. That does not mean that they can know every single strategy that exists um, in the world as well. And so I think it's really important to, as you're kind of looking at an exit strategy, to look at the fact that there might be other possibilities that you need to educate yourself on that your CPA, your enrolled agent may not know. Um so that you can help educate them as well to helping you do the due diligence to find a strategy that mitigates and reduces your taxation legally um, that that your team, your lawyer, your CPA, yourself, all feel comfortable implementing. And it sounds like these people in this particular transaction were pretty coachable. They were open-minded. And as you said, they really knew what they wanted to accomplish. They knew what they wanted to accomplish. They didn't know how to get there. They saw the vision. They didn't know. They thought it was going to be something that happened when they died. They didn't know that they could actually accomplish their legacy and see their legacy fulfilled while they were living. And that that just, um, it was really hard. It was just a really great transaction. It was great to work with these individuals and and help them realize their dream. So, so we've talked about some of the transactions you've been involved in here, talking, you know, relatively big numbers, you know, $5 million, $10 million, $12 million, these larger transactions. Could you share with us a transaction that may not have been at that level, 
but still had a really positive impact for someone that may not traditionally think would have a big, huge tax problem like millions of dollars. Can you share a transaction with us like that? Definitely. I had a young lady come to me. She was referred to me and she had a internet business that had some product equipment things in, embedded in it. And it was going to list for 400000 And so she's 22 years old, built, I mean, like, $400,000 to a 22-year-old is a lot of money. $400,000 is a lot of money to me. Well, $400,000 when I was 22 years old, <laughs> I couldn't even comprehend that much money. Exactly. And so she wanted to go back to school. Like she said, she came to me and said, you know, Shannon, I've had fun running this business. It's I'm kind of getting a little over my head. I want to go back to school and I want to go do X, Y, and Z. Um, can you help me? I know, like my dad told me to call you um, because he knows that I'm going to get walloped with taxes. And I said, you're right. You know, so your $400,000 taxation, your $400,000 business is going to cost you about 87,000 in taxes. So you're going to walk away with about 272,000. And she was like, oh, I don't like that idea. Like she was like, well, do I have to pay that? And I said, well, if you don't do anything about it, you're going to have to pay it. And she's like, well, what can I do about it? And so again, very charitably minded, this young lady, she, you know, she liked the humane society and she was an animal lover. And her dad was like, she's always bringing strays home. And, you know, like, how about if we stop bringing stray cats home and we actually give our money to, to help someone. And so we were able again to go through uh, an elimination process of her taxation. And instead of walking, walking away with only 272,000, she walked away with 315,000. And, and she got it over a series. So she was going back to school. And so she took a series of payments over a period of time from the, the charitable remainder trust. And so she accomplished her goal. Her dad was happy because she wasn't bringing straight cats home anymore. And she went off to, you know, she's in school um, finishing her degree. So I assume that she used this money to kind of fund her education and get her through school and maybe funded her next business, created some seed capital for another business. I don't know if that's what she decided to do, whether she went and got a job or anything, but at least she had that money, that $87,000 that would have disappeared, was able to be retained and benefit the Humane Society in this case and fund her education and probably set her up for her next venture, whatever that might have been. Yes, definitely. You know, and I think the takeaway here is that every plan is individual. Every single plan, oftentimes we're layering different planning techniques, um, but every single plan is individual. And if we have someone early enough in the process, there's often things that we can do right away to help them get immediate tax savings in the years that they're actually operating their business. And then as we get closer to the actual sale, you know, mitigating or reducing the taxation for them at the actual event as well. But if there's a takeaway is that this was very individualized. This was, you know, you, you don't have to have $10 million transactions um, to alleviate tax burden. You know, a $400,000 tax, you know, sale of a company, and we were able to really mitigate uh, the taxation, I mean, eliminate taxation on that transaction. Well, you could argue 
that $87,000 on a $400,000 transaction has a lot more impact on lifestyle and what you actually realize than a $10 million transaction is going to net $7.5 million. You're still going to have a considerable amount of dollars to fund a lifestyle based on it, whether it's $7 million or $10 million that you actually keep. That isn't as impactful, but $87,000 on $400,000 is really impactful. It is. And, you know, that's why I, I really get geeked when I do tax planning, because when I work with someone, will come to me and say, well, I only, our business is only bringing in 150 or 200,000. And we can do little tiny tweaks from that standpoint. And doing those little tiny tweaks makes so much, it makes so much difference. Like they're big tweaks that make an impact, you know, for years and years. So I get, you know, it's not the size of the deal. We can impact everyone by doing the proper planning. Well, this has been delightful, Shannon. I think that it has demonstrated, I think, that one of the things we haven't talked a lot about here on the podcast, we get sometimes knee-deep in the details of different types of exit strategies and what can go wrong in an exit and what can go right and exits that have over-the-fence home runs type of situations. But here is a little bit different orientation and discussion that we've had here today when we're talking about the importance of taxes. And specifically in this era right now, we're in the pre-re-landscaping of capital gains. If we believe what we're hearing, and we don't know exactly what the capital gains legislation will actually turn out to be, but I think everyone will agree that it's going to be more than it is today. It isn't going to go down, and it's going to go up, and it may go up substantially. So tax planning is going to become even more important in the future and something that you may just not want to ignore or go ahead and pay the capital gains tax. I mean, we're potentially talking about doubling if you're in a tax-heavy state that has taxes, New York, California, Illinois, some places like that where have high capital gains. This is going to be a big deal. Most definitely. I think, I mean, taxation isn't going anywhere but up. And so it's something that it will pay a, a business owner to have a base of a base of knowledge and a team around them to mitigate those taxes definitely into the future. Well, it's been delightful again, as I said, Shannon. Thanks for joining us here today. If someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, how would they do that? So on my website, advancedaccounting.com, there's actually a link at the right-hand corner that says schedule a 15-minute consultation. I'm always happy to talk to entrepreneurs about what they're doing and um, if tax planning is right for them. So they can reach me there by just scheduling right online. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember... Maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.